In today's episode of VFM, we are talking to Robert Holford from Altus about his time at two regulators and what value for money means to him. to the 21st episode of VFM, The Pensions Podcast. And as ever, I'm delighted to be joined by my co-host, Darren Philp. Hello, Darren. Hi, Nico. How are you? Very well, very well. Good, good. And I couldn't be happier to be doing yet another (laughs) VFM podcast with the one and only Nico Aspinall. (laughs) And today, we're absolutely delighted to be joined by Altus Director of Life and Pensions, Robert Holford. Welcome, Robert. Hello, happy to be here. Yeah, great to 21st you. podcast when when VFM comes of age. Yeah, no, great. Wow. Great, <laughs> great to have you on. Great to have you on. You've got the key to the door. Uh, it's actually <laughs> episode 24, isn't it? 24. I, how I, many, yeah. we, we lose count. We, we You're our 21st guest, I think, is, is that, us. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you, 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 you as, we, as we've sort of remarked and joked before, you it's your actuarial numbering um, that, that goes well, into Happy your, 21st guest day, then. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> yeah. exactly. So, so, Robert, you've had a long and distinguished career in pensions. Um, you were at Spence Johnson. Um, used to know the guys well there. Um, the FCA and TPR, and I think at TPR you worked on the, the development of the joint strategy, um, ensuring that thinking on value for money was um, part and parcel of the regulators' thinking at the time. And you joined Altus in 2022 as their director of life and pensions to build up strategic capabilities on value for money and consumer duty. So, you know, we're expecting great things from the podcast today, Robert. <laughs> Thank you. I like distinguished, yeah. Um, doesn't, doesn't feel like that, but yeah. <laughs> I'm too I'm too young to be distinguished, honestly. You know. Well, I don't know. I don't know. Wow. No, I, I don't think it's true anymore. You know. We're all we're all growing distinguished gracefully. That's, we are, uh, yes. That's the, yes. <laughs> that's the, the three of us in pension. <laughs> As ever, we start with the news. Uh, Robert, what have you brought in for us? So yes, so uh, I um, uh, well, well, I'm going to give a shout out to a to a long term fan, which is uh, dear old Henry, um, and my piece of news comes from his blog um, on the DWP's uh, attendance at the uh, conference up in Edinburgh at the moment, um, where they suggested that employers will have a key role in assessing pensions value for money. I think mm. this was something that you guys raised as as missing from the from or uh, section of employers was missing from the value for money framework consultation yep. so this does appear that, that they've taken note of that and i think this is a very interesting development um uh, i think the uh, the the implementation challenges will be considerable because i think often in the industry we think of employers as being tescos or you know mm. people with people with big hr departments and big big sort of governance you know, requirements but i think as I've, I've said before i have a very nice lady who who, who runs the cleaning company that does my uh uh, that does my cleaning in my house who's in her 20s you know and and you know no matter how easy it's made she's 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 basically a a, a retail consumer right i mean you know yeah. she might run a company but she's a retail consumer so so in, in many ways for me if it if it can be made to work for employers then effectively it's being made to work for consumers um because uh, because the millions millions of those employers are effectively consumers as well so uh, i think that's 
that's an interesting development. It is, isn't it? And I think um, you know, it's, it goes to, to the heart of the question of, of you know, um, what is VFM for and who is it for? And um, it'll be interesting to see what the reaction of employer groups is to some of this stuff, uh, because I know that the DWP have been always reluctant to put additional duties on employers. Um, they were very conscious in the rollout of auto enrolment that they they wanted to try and make it easy as easy as possible for employers to comply. You know, we could have a long debate about whether that um, actually came to fruition or not. Um, but you know, they've always the government's always been very conscious about employer burdens when it comes to pension saving and auto enrolment. Um, so, 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 do you think this will be welcomed by employers, Robert, or do you think there'll be some pushback when the the announcement is eventually made? <sighs> I think I think it's likely there's going to be some pushback, but mm. but equally, um, I suppose the question on this is, you know, if we're going to put VFM in, who's going to be watching it? I mean, Australia. We I think you've mentioned yeah, you, know, you had Joe on and she was talking about the Australian system. You know, it's published in the papers; people can see these things sort of for themselves. Um, so so the burden there is based on the consumer more than on the employer. And and I think the fact we have employers is such a key part of our system here is largely historic in many ways. Yeah. Um, so you know, I think there are models out there where it could be put more on the on the consumer. But equally, we build a system around inertia uh, where we've sort of told people they don't need to, you know, pay that much attention to it. Certainly, for the accumulation phase, it's quite a difficult message to then turn around and say, "Oh, we, we were only kidding. You really need to pay attention to this quite closely," and you know those sort of things too. So it's a difficult, it's a very difficult, you know, thing to find that sort of engaged demand side. Um, to, to drive some of the demand characteristics that that you know would would make value driven by choice effectively work in the system. I, I think I think that's a, that's a big challenge. And and personally, I'm not sure value in the system is driven by choice that much. But but if it yeah. is, if there are any choices being made, it's employers making those choices. So yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I think I think it's really interesting to see where the you know so so I I think we're in a bit of a situation where essentially the government just keeps on loading stuff onto um am i with you you are oh hello yeah, yeah. Back. You, no, no, you, 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 you never went away nico <laughs> you went you you muted yourself darren and it sounded like my internet connection broke uh, so oh, don't don't uh, mute yourself uh, you're 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 bumping highly professional like, unit uh, highly professional uh, unit i've joined here uh, i can uh, see yeah uh, i am um, <laughs> i was having a sip of water <laughs> uh. no just just sip it live because i could hear you muting <laughs> and it made it uh it made me think my internet had gone Are you going to carry on, Nico? Are you still recording? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, yeah, I'm not editing that out. Um, <laughs> well, there's, there's no good dead air, is there? Um, yeah. Um, yeah. So, I tell you something, I've, I've never known Nico to be lost for words on this podcast before. I'm, I'm, I'm pleased to be the first yeah, one. I, I think, I think no, we've yeah, done absolutely. it. We've, we've, I feel. I feel... I think we've finally broken him. Who knew that it would be a sip of water that would finally undo him, not some complex question It was, about it was the silence that put me off. It's the silence that put me off. <laughs> um, the look, so so I, I, I think we're in a situation where um, basically it is politically... Uh, we were sort of talking about this in the prep, and I think it might come up later. It seems easier for the government to load more duties onto people who have no ability to transact those duties mm. than for the government to do anything, right? Mm. So the government could point to TPR, point to FCA and say, make sure these schemes are value for money and take that duty away from the employer. Um, 
it could point to the employer and force the employer to appoint in some way a value for money assessment. Maybe there's a minimum, uh, a maximum size or, you know, where, where people are let off that, that duty. Um, but, you know, there's just a sense that, I don't know, the government wants to like write regulations and not spend money on doing stuff. Um, and, you know, consolidation is part of that theme. Uh, you know, the climate change agenda is part of that theme. Uh, the build back Britain and the leveling up and the, all of these things seem to be part of that theme. Um, and I get the money's tight, but yeah, we, we, we're kind of letting the government off the hook by allowing them to sort of write these kind of pretty meaningless duties, aren't we? Uh, yeah, and I think um, it's a really good point. And there's a point that was identified at the conference that Robert mentioned. So that's the PLSA mm. Investment Conference in Edinburgh. And I think um, Will Martindale from Cardano was on the panel. And he's, he basically said, with regards to things like climate change, we're, we're sort of getting things the wrong way around. You know, mm. you've got to regulate the corporates first, then the investment managers, and then the pension schemes. You know, and, and that would be the sensible way to get biggest bang for your buck in terms of change as quickly as possible. Um, I mean, I, I couldn't agree more on that front. I mean, I'm, I'm a very old-fashioned economist when it comes to my views on some of these things, and I go all the way back to Smith. There are public goods and there are market goods. Yeah. And I think that a lot of the pensions debate is about, at the moment, is about pensions investment delivering public goods. And the problem with public goods is investment in public goods returns to the public. It returns to the, yeah. the society um, in the form of economic growth and those sort of things. But it doesn't return to the investors generally, which is why we have taxes and why we, we spend, we, we pay the government to invest in these things. I mean, the, the, the technology I could immediately springs to mind on this is um, nuclear fusion. I mean, you know, if you've invested in it as a private investor at any time in the last, whatever it is, 40, 50 years, you've probably lost your money because it's taken an awfully long time to, to, to develop. Once it's developed, once it works, private markets will distribute it incredibly efficiently, more efficiently than governments probably could. You know, and, and that's for me what, what the private market investment is for. It, it's taking this technology once you once you've overcome that considerable initial investment cost and, and making sure it's efficiently, you know, distributed and, and deployed, um, you know, throughout throughout the economy. But but, you know, to expect pension schemes to do the early stage investment in some of this stuff is is to to expect them to do something that is not very well aligned, in my view, with their ultimate aim of providing a pension at the end of it. And, and I think mm. a lot of the thing about pension at the moment is just how many different outcomes people are expecting pensions to deliver. Mm. Um, you know, and, 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 you know, I just think we need to get back to that core question of, you know, is that going to yield a pension or a, a pot of money, whichever way you want to go for the members at the end of it? I mean, in some ways, this sounds strange, I know, but the pension scheme's job is to be paying, is, is to be able to pay out a pension at the end of someone's working life, even if the world is burning around around its ears to some extent you know it's it's government and society's job to make sure that doesn't happen it's, it's not going to come from, from from pension schemes specifically because because if it does then they might they might not meet their objectives and one of my concerns on that is also you know if if that's you know, if it's the case that we think you know saving the planet is is a more valuable thing to do than 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 uh you know providing pensions and if it's genuinely a choice between those two things we need to be much more honest with people that that's what we're doing yeah. with their pensions money, you know, and, and maybe we need to debate about whether AE is the right thing. Maybe we need a green tax instead, you know, mm. if that is, if that, if we think that's the more important of the two, then don't tell people you're, you're investing for their pension, because it, if it's invested in things that won't deliver that, that, you know, when, when you come to them at the end of the journey and say, sorry, we spent that saving the planet. It's not there for you. It wasn't really there for you ever kind of stuff. You're like, well, they're going to be like, well, that's not, that wasn't made clear to us, you know? 
Um, so I worry about that aspect of, of the inertia and all the rest of it too. You know, but, it's, it's seen as dead money. You can do whatever you like with until people need it. <laughs> you know, and that's, that's just, I think that's very sensible. I, I, I agree with what you would love what you've just said there, Robert. I just wanted to pick up on one piece, which is, I guess, about the fact that lots of individuals together make the market. So, so there, there is yeah. an issue that the collective uh, is ungoverned. Um, and if no individual sees it to have it to sees themselves as having the responsibility of in some way being part of society and part of the commons, then nobody, in fact, takes the actions that, that look after the commons. So it's very, you know, the, the traditional commons example is thinking about um, essentially grazing rights. Um, and yeah. those farmers did actually not act selfishly and, um, you know, destroy the commons by overgrazing it. They did actually manage uh, between themselves a way to, to essentially not maximise their profit, but to maximise the continuity of the commons. So, yeah, so there are things, those pension schemes are financing climate change um, and it may not be their responsibility to solve all of it but it has to be their responsibility to solve some of it because otherwise it's no yeah, one's responsibility I'm, right? I, I, I'm not i'm not for a minute saying that that you know i think we should i mean i think one of the fascinating things about um you know the approach to, to esg now is is so when i was at the fca we had there was a lot of debate i had around whether you know the esg approach you know people were skeptical about esg because they were like oh we've, we've been through ethical funds and clean funds before and it never makes enough money and people are never that interested and i researched those funds actually at the start of my career when i worked for cambridge associates and i'd agree that you know limiting things uh, is is a challenge but my point to them was that, that that's not what's happening here you know the likes of rubica and blackrock they're putting esg factors into their stock picking you know yeah. their stock selection processes which means they're doing what economics does best they're putting it in the price um you know so we are shifting i mean it's much bigger than value for pensions but we're shifting what society means by value so you know the more you put that sort of thing into the price the more things that display those characteristics will be bought which means the prices will go up you know which which means that yeah the the the, the economic side i think is doing its its best to do that to, to 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 put things in the price to change that definition of value and i think that is important but i think it is not being met with a similarly uh, intense or, or sort of focused debate on what the public spending side of that or the, yeah, the, the, yeah. the government spending side of that needs to be in order to in order to in order to provide in order to supply the market if you like with the kind of things yeah. that are going to to invest in i mean yeah and, and and for me it's not just about the spending side of things it's a wider regulatory side of things you know i think we're in such an economic mess um that the government and you know we've had events obviously like covid and let's let's mention the b words the brexit um, you know, the government is just running scared of large business at the moment um, and it doesn't want their finger pointed at it for, you know, dampening growth and, um, you know, putting the brakes on the recovery. So I think there's that wider sort of regulatory political stuff going on there as well. We could talk about this all day, couldn't we? We could. Um, but but we we ought to try and come on to VFM. I mean, we we just jumped off of VFM into like all of the problems in the world. Um, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that, uh, Darren. That no, no that was that was a lot. It's great to have a, a proper economics discussion, and it's I think the example you were referring to, uh, Nico, is it's called the tragedy of the commons. Um, it is. Yeah, and I remember that very fondly from my undergraduate days. And it's nice to have an economist perspective on Robert. So keep it up. Um, you know, it's good to have that sort of, 
you know, more sensible economists thinking rather than that. And more of a political economist than whoever was a mathematician when it comes to economics. Rather than the random, you know, musings of an actuary. But anyway, let's move swiftly on. So seeing the tragedy of the commons, I am going to there is a big problem, which is that economics believes that people are selfish. It does, yeah. zero evidence that they are. So all anthropology demonstrates that people are altruistic and it is weird that they are, do occasionally act selfishly mm. um, and economics come at this from the totally opposite way so um do, you know it's great to have two economists on but i feel ganged up um there's the <laughs> i would uh, i would i know I, i'm 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 much more of a political economist than i am a, than, uh -huh. than a, and, and political economy would be much more in line with that i would say in terms yeah. of in terms of that yeah, fair enough you know i, th I think actually modern economics what what it suffered from is removing the political because when we say political economy what we mean is putting the societal element back into it and i think yeah. you're absolutely right market focused economics is much too focused on the individual and and well, and just encourages that focus well and, and i think um and we're going to go off on one now um but i think it, it, it goes into um, the, the, the basic problem with economics and how it's looked to develop and i think it's got a bit of an identity crisis as to whether it's a social science yeah mm. or um it's trying too hard to be a science so to get the maths to work and to get the modelling to work, yeah, um, you have to make some pretty heroic assumptions, yeah. Um, one to your point, Nico, is individual utility maximisation, yeah. Yep. Um, so you know what is the societal aspect of that, and if your underpinning models are all about that utility maximisation from the individual perspective, then you know that's not a realistic starting point. Um, the other, the other one that always gets me is rational expectations. And the, the assumption to make the numbers or the models work or the mathematics work, that consumers always behave rationally. Um, and I think that, you know, like Robert, like you were saying, the political economy act, uh, aspect of it, the, the economic narrative point of it, the storytelling is much more powerful than just getting deeper and deeper and deeper into the maths and just crunching the numbers. And drawing this back to the pensions sort of part. Well done, Robert. Well, no, no, but, but I think <laughs> there's something do. very, I think it's very fundamental if we're talking about this value for money debate, because my view on value for money is much more to do with the collective outcome um, and, and perhaps let, and, and at least trying to get that aspect of it focused on just as much as the individual outcome. I think, again, that thing about, you know, because value means so, individually, value means very different things to very different people. And, and the system can't, effectively it's the kind of scale we've got it at now i don't think can effectively deliver to everybody's particular definition of value no. i think it's about that collective sort of thing and, and 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 one of the one of the pieces of research or one of the pieces of insights that always sort of struck me on this was when when the australians did their their their, their analysis of their sort of my supermarket which is the default fund market you know they found that that you know the top quartile the top quartile performance was returning you know pots of 45 percent larger than, than those who are in the bottom quartile and you know and and i know you've talked a lot about herding and those sort of things mm. in in this in this and whether value for money will lead to that i mean from a policy perspective that's not necessarily a negative because how do you decide who's going to be in that top quartile and who's going to be in that bottom quartile how do you decide who's going to get 45 percent better return you know over their lifetime than than, than the bottom that you know it, that seems like you know it, it could be distributed very unequally and you know based on what we know about you know power dynamics and who who might you know who might be able to get access to those better outcomes versus who might be stuck with the worse outcomes you know it, it tends to break it tends to break that the, the most vulnerable and you know tend to tend to be more on the mm. side of the worse outcomes and and etc so i think a value for money framework that narrows the outcomes that gives up some of the best returns in order to 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 
to get more of the you know to, to to raise the bar for those at the bottom you know is is where a lot of this is heading because you know now that we have a national pension system now it is effectively a utility you know mm. it, it's 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 taking the place of it's, it's trying to make up that gap between what the state pension provides and what we think people kind of need and 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 therefore you know a, a, a system in which you know a baseline a baseline system an auto enrolled inert system in which everyone gets about the same um and and that's the baseline overlaid with a sort of choice architecture you know where you can exit from from the baseline and, and start to do things which which enable you to do more with your pensions if you want to i think that's the system that is sort of trying to emerge here um and i think that the value for money framework as it currently stands is focused on making that that baseline system work more evenly for so, all so i don't I think policymakers mind if it hurts a bit <laughs> but taking that a bit further on because one of the proposals uh, that we discussed last week was the tony blair institute to talk about super plans i mean should we have because one of the <laughs> when it was the napf there was a licensing proposal for auto enrollment super funds four to six super funds um you know these super funds would essentially be quasi sovereign wealth they would achieve these government objectives or you know at least tick some boxes in terms of investing in britain uh, possibly, you know, climate change, but they would also presumably not offer choice. Um, they might compete with each other, but in the manner that the APs do in the Swedish model, um, you know, and then competition would sit at a level above where you have, you know, people who, who want to make voluntary savings to improve their outcomes, right? Is that is Partly that... because competition is driven by choice and those people are making choices, yeah. so it can drive competition. And um, then it's no longer an employer duty to assess those things because you would have a regulator of four to six super funds. Um, who would make would sure that the outcomes a... are largely yeah. aligned between them. And yeah, and, and I think, look, I mean, this is a deeply personal opinion. You know, obviously I operate in the industry and, and it's not very popular, a very popular opinion, I'd say, but it's not... It, it, I mean, so I think some of the things Tony, the Tony Blair Institute were pointing at was interesting because a long time ago now, uh, I, I did when when I was working on on this this stuff at the regulators, I did say, you know, one day the government's going to realise there are large pots of money sitting around in mm. the PPF and and and, mm. and local authority <laughs> pension schemes, and you know, some bright spark at the Treasury, I imagine a young Darren Philp here is going to say, well, hang on a second, if we if we if we move that onto the government balance sheet, we can take a we can take that capital out now and sort of you know and 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 you know and and some of the recommendations they're coming up with is quite close to that, really, when, when you look mm. at it. Um, and I think the bigger the PPF gets in terms of the amount of money it's got in it, the more tempting that target's going to be for, you know, what is essentially governments, you know, facing facing quite a, a you know, stringent future, shall we say. Um, yeah. But I think, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that sort of, I mean, I think the big, the, you know, if we look at regulated utilities in this country more generally, you know, even if that doesn't happen, you know, think about energy, think about mobile phones, think about whatever. They're they're highly regulated entities where the core product is fairly standardized and the the outcome you experience is not that differentiated one from another. There are differences, you know, you might have different apps or different, you know, slightly different pricing or those sort of things too. But effectively the things we see as essential services to be delivered to people, of which AE makes pensions one now. I mean it's the most common mm. financial service you'll have after your bank account, another highly regulated yeah. um, you know, space. Yeah. Um, you know, especially if it's extended to the under 18s and, and, and the, the, the 10,000 pounds earning threshold is removed. You know, I think that's where the industry at the core is going to head. I, I think there will always, there has always, and will always be a mass affluent wealth market that will, that will sit on top of that. Um, but, but it, it seems, you know, if I look at that figure from the Australians, you know, a 45% difference in outcomes, you know, 
it's a random walk at the moment. I yeah. mean, you know, yeah. it, 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 I want that. I want this job over here because I'm interested in doing this piece of work. Uh, you know, so I'm going to go and take that job. Oh, and that person has selected a pension for me, and and so thank you. I've just got pensions advice. Um, you know, uh, but by picking a job, and 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 you know, and we all know that yes, they might be trying to compete with me. Another thing pensions are trying to do is be, a, be an employee benefit, right? So they might be offering a good, you know, a good contribution, but that doesn't tell you whether they've selected a good scheme or not at the end of it. No. So, so even that even that little bit of insight I might get as to the quality of the pension. You know, you know, people with better contributions, I would hope, have made better better decisions, but it's not guaranteed. So even that doesn't tell me whether they've selected a good pension provider or not. So so that's how I choose my pension, or how my pension is chosen for me to some extent. If I change jobs, it happens again. Mm. And I could go from a well-governed scheme to a poor-governed scheme. Who knows? And it's one of the reasons I, I find that some of the debates around portfolios member interesting. People are like, well, what, what if you what if you move from a well from a well governed scheme to a, to an scheme? I'm like, well, it happens anyway. It does, yeah. It, yeah at the yeah. moment, it just happens that your your pot stays with a well governed scheme. That's great, but then your next pot grows in a less well governed scheme. Hopefully, it averages out. I don't know, but but it's a random walk. It's already a random walk. So so, and I think since I think the suitcase thing, you know, the the, the, the carrying a suitcase from one from one. Um, from one employer to another is better than you know having a handbag and and and, and putting it in the cupboard <laughs> well, and then moving on to the next to the next place, you know. And then we, the we are seriously at risk. No, 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 <laughs> our structure, <laughs> our structure is very much at risk. Let's come back to that, Darren, right. because like, yeah, honestly, yeah. We, we we let's just do justice to right. the rest of the news. So we, we need some <laughs> order. So so Robert, you, 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 you you've broken Nico, yeah. Bring me uh, a and, and you've broken the program, yeah. Um, so, but anyway, so you you, we're, we're you invited waiting, me. We're, we're just waiting <laughs> for the third thing. Um, but we need to we we could we were talking about handbags and suitcases before we started the podcast. So we definitely have to come back to that. Of, we otherwise, to back otherwise to the last couple of minutes just will mean nothing to any of our listeners. <laughs> so anyway, Nico, very very quickly, what news have you got for us? Yes. Um, so uh, the pensions regulator has stood up on stage uh, in the guise of, of uh, Louise Davy, and um, yeah. So the way it's reported in um, what is it? Pensions Age. I've got it in. Um, it was a blog. Nico. It was a blog. It was a blog, oh, was it? It was a blog from Louise. Yeah. Uh, I see. So, so it is actually dictation. So we expect trustees to guard against the risk of savers making knee-jerk reaction, which could harm their retirement plans. Uh, and schemes to engage with savers approaching retirement to review and update their choices. This is really in reference to the guilt crisis last year, where um, essentially DC savers close to retirement may have been heavily exposed to guilt and lost substantial proportions of their pot values uh, on the assumption that they were going to go and buy an annuity. And then, of course, they probably didn't. Yep. So, um, yeah, I think absolutely right from the pensions regulator. Um, I wanted to do a little bit of reading between the lines on this and just ask, is this a warning shot that the regulator is going to come and look at, you know, those returns from September and the reaction of trustees? Because mm. um, I think trustees, you know, listening to this, seeing that from from Louise should be really, really focused on their investment strategy um you know to some extent this is the dog that hasn't barked right i yeah. don't think there have been huge numbers of complaints but if the regulator is on your case on this then this should be licensed to operate territory not not that you suffered the risk because you know there are definitely quite kamikaze budgets were pretty unpredictable mm. but you have failed to react in the nine months you've had since so yeah I, interesting if you're a trustee listening to this you know take that as a warning sign and get on it um but uh, yeah, I was, that was my sort of reading between the lines of, of, of what she wrote. Yeah, and obviously a lot of the focus of the Kamikaze budget 
has been around um, impact on DB schemes and the LDI crisis. And, um, you know, it seems to be that the sort of DC implications of this have uh, played second fiddle um, mm. to date so far. And I think, um, like you, it's great that the regulator's coming out and, and looking at this. And I think it will... Um, it'll, it, 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 it's all about what we're trying to achieve with a pension. And, yeah. and, and for me, when the DWP consult on their retirement proposals, which we're expecting in the next um, few weeks or so, um, I think trustees and schemes will have to really raise their games in terms of, you know, what option or options, you know, and expectations do they create uh, for people um, at retirement, but also how best to get people there um, while keeping people on risk, maximising returns, but also managing volatility. So I think, um, yeah. you know, DC pensions are just about to move from, uh, you know, uh, accumulation vehicle into, you know, yeah, this is actually about delivering something for people in terms of a pension. But I do think this is an interesting one because, you know, the, that Tony Blair Institute um, thing that you mentioned, Nico, I think you mentioned in the podcast where you brought it up previously that, you know, it, what is the PPF invested in exactly already? It, yeah. it It's government bonds, isn't it? So... Mm. <laughs> the government's already got the money and they've already spent it you know to some extent and again yeah. you know what, what are these what are these accumulations you know if, if we're gonna if we're gonna de, if we're gonna de-risk in this way you're gonna sell government bonds aren't you to to, to put in something else because government bonds are now seen as risky but 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 that is that is an interesting you know that's an interesting challenge because i, I suspect we can't afford much as you pointed out a, a, a large-scale sale of gilts um right. you know by, by pension schemes in order to replace them with mm. things that are now seen as, as, as less risky so so again that sort of you know the things that we expect pension schemes to to do i mean you know pension schemes form a massive part of the government bond market and if they all, all suddenly exit from it you know it, it it will be it will be a challenge on an economic front to some extent um yeah, so well, i think this I, is a really spoiler alert that's happening right so so yeah. you know all of the db schemes are where the majority of gilts are held when they go and buy out insurance companies hold credit right so they sell those yeah. gilts into the market to buy corporate bonds um, they don't want those gilts. They can't get the matching adjustment. The discount rate is is too low yeah. with those gilts, and they make profit left left, right, and centre by making that switch from gilts to credit. Um, and there's a whole other podcast that we should have Darren about mm. um, insurance company accounting. Um, because, uh, it is wow, getting more fascinating <laughs> by the podcast. I, I, I know, <laughs> I know. You guys can't wait. So so there is one and a half trillion of government debt in those pension schemes. And over the next, well, I thought 10 to 15 years, but because of the Kamikaze budget over the next zero to five years, maybe mm. that is going to be up for grabs. Yeah. And the run on the pound that comes from that um, is, is should be terrifying to any treasury official uh, thinking about it. So unfortunately, DC and annuity and decumulation right now won't be can't be a counterbalance to that. No. Uh, it's just not of, of size. Um, but yeah, you know, uh, how that changes in the future, we shall continue to watch. Um, Darren, Indeed. what have you brought in for us? Right, yeah, uh, very, very quickly. So um, it's been quite a busy news week, this one. Um, mm. So pensions dashboard programme further delayed to October 2026. So I think there was a written ministerial statement uh, from the Pensions Minister, Laura Trott, that uh, was put out yesterday, um, talking about that more time is needed to to deal with the sort of complex build issues around the pensions dashboard. But they've set that end date for schemes to be connected to the dashboard uh, by the end of October 2026. 
But rather interestingly, they're going to let schemes decide when they connect during that period. Um, so the, the regulatory requirement for staging dates, as I understand it, will 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 will, will vanish from the regulations and be replaced by you know suggested guidance of when people might want to um, sort of plug into the dashboard and and, and, and connect. So it's all very much Pirates of the Caribbean, isn't it? It's it, really it, more about guidelines. Yeah, yeah. no, exa- yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you know, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out because I think you know having certainty on that end date is good. Yeah, um, and giving the government some flexibility to, you know, adjust the staging date through sort of learnings from in the program is also good. You know, we saw with AE that you can get particular humps and bumps, and um, you know, being able to flex some of this um, does no harm at all. You know, but Robert, from your sort of industry experience and your regulatory experience, do you think people will be rushing up to connect? In line with the guidance or or do you think so, that ultimately this is just going to lead as some people are saying to you know potential capacity crunch where everyone has to connect by that end date of the 31st of october 2026 and then the whole thing falls over so Altus, as you know have been deeply involved in this because we, we uh we're part of the pension fusions um thing and, and we actually ran a poll um, uh, on one of the webcasts we were on about about this, looking at sort of what percentage of those people is something about sort of about forty eight um, participants. So not not you know, necessarily demonstrative of the entire industry, but we we looked at you know what what percentage said they would um, connect as per the various deadlines, guidance, or regulatory, and you know only only about sort of a third you know said they'd do it you know either before or close to the guidance date, and and forty percent said they'd be waiting at least till the till the regulatory deadline. So. You know, I do think got between the guidance and the regulatory deadline. So yeah. I do think, you know, and then that so so in total that's almost sixty percent sigma, just over so, so almost seventy percent, sorry, that were saying that they would they would do it sometime between the regulatory deadline and, and the close to it. And then we asked them, you know, how much before the regulatory deadline, and again, you know, the vast majority were were, you know, in the last, you know, six six months or so. Right. Um uh so I do think there's gonna be a crunch. I, I, uh, we do think there's a there's a definite um there's a definite risk that the the expertise that's been built up and that some momentum that's been built up is now going to dissipate into other projects and it might be quite hard mm. to bring it all back together again mm. um you know for 2026 which you know <laughs> it's a long time in the world of pensions pensions administration to some extent um uh and and, and technology so 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 yeah is i think that, there is, there is... A first mover advantage is there an advantage to anyone being on dashboards like as quickly as possible to, to my mind, there's a first mover advantage in um, getting your dashboard out, yeah, um, and yeah. being a dashboard provider, um, uh-huh. probably less so in terms of connecting in yourself. Yeah, because that's the problem, isn't it? So, mm. so it, it, unless there's an incentive on the scheme to get going on this, then, as you say, Robert, I mean, I, three years, five months is uh, <laughs> three project managers, right? A rotation, isn't it? And uh, goodness knows, there's there's every every other project in the world to prioritise against that. So, yep. yeah, creating incentive for people to put themselves on the dashboard has got to be the the actual focus here, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I think that's a hundred percent right. So we've been talking a lot about pensions and wider economics and um, lots of sort of big societal issues, but we haven't yet asked Robert um, how he got into pensions. So Robert, perhaps you could just give us uh, the potted history of your career to date. 
So I'm afraid, like many of our other guests, um, uh, having listened to, to a good good number of your previous podcasts, I, I did not intend as a young as a young young Robert did, was not dreaming of becoming a pensions expert. Um, uh, and uh, and yes, when my children occasionally ask what I do, I, <laughs> I, I I wonder how I'm going to be an inspiration to them in in, in that regard. Um, so no, I came to pensions uh, through a slightly indirect route in some ways. Um, uh, it's going to sound direct because it came. It was through investment consultancy, but I started off at a, at a consultancy called Cambridge Associates that actually were, you know, at the time they were the fourth largest consultancy in the world. I'm not sure if that's still true, but they were very focused on the institutional market, excluding pensions, so endowments, um, charities, uh, sovereign wealth, um, yeah, family office, that, those sorts of things. So it was an interesting route a into big, pensions. A big wide world out there outside pensions. It was a big, big wide world outside pensions. And, and I think something we forget mm. a little bit in pensions too, when we're talking about investments and that there is a global competition for some of these high quality investments that we're all sort of after. And, and you know, often that's why they cost more and those sort of things too, because because some of those institutional investors are willing to pay what, pay those costs and sometimes in pensions we can't afford them. But it was an interesting e- entry as well because I worked for two ex-bond managers as as uh, as, uh, as my my leads in the in the research I did, and I've always found if you want to really sort of understand, you know, the the the, uh, the, the sort of how markets work and the rest of it, bond, the bond the bond side of things tend to be the tend to be the the, the more um, what's the word uh, pessimistic yeah. should we yeah. say, um, but also they were very it was it was a very interesting culture because they were very focused on on effectively the fact that our job was as so i was taken aside by my boss quite early in my career and told um you know robert our job isn't really to pick the best managers in in the uh in 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 the in the market and i was like well, I sort of thought that was what, was what our job was that's what we tell our clients with he said well you know he said basically um it's impossible to know um who the best managers are generally because you know it, it, you can pick the right thing for for a very long time you know based on how the market's structured and then you can make one bad call and lose it all mm. so you know that's not really our job our job is to ensure that the institutional money is protected from the worst um the worst you know aspects of financial services that it is that it is being looked after by people who take that responsibility seriously you know are at least aiming to be the best you know have the right kind of ethos the right kind of you know the right cultures within their firms to enable them to stick to their their investment you know investment approaches because the way that consultants design portfolios you need your value managers to stay being value managers even when value isn't really performing very well and those sort of things and that that is a big part of the job and and the reason for that you know they, they they said is because you know ultimately a lot of what you know what we do is is look after little old ladies money or you know those sort of things and and the industry has a tendency to forget that sometimes you know and and you know the number of managers i met when i was doing fund manager research who i kind of felt had forgotten that it wasn't yeah. their money you know yeah. you talk about my fund and my investments and my whatever and 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 you're like but none of this is yours you're you're mm. paid you're paid a wage effectively to to i mean some of it might be co-investment is part of the thing but but the vast majority is not is not is not their money and and i think that instilled in me a very strong sense of you know financial services performs a very important role but it's a role in service to others not not in service to ourselves um and so you know as i started there and then moved into um as, as you mentioned i moved into um uh, sort of almost po- I've, I've been poaching going to term gamekeeper a couple of times so i started off researching asset managers and then i went into invest it and spence johnson where i was advising them on 
initially you know how to sell things to who i used to be so how to structure their yeah. products so that consultants would you know would would, mm. would understand that they were doing the right thing and all the rest of it and then moved from from there we, we moved from a small small consultancy called invest it to another small consultancy called spence yep. johnson and i took on responsibility for researching the market more and 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 leading on sort of dc and and that's where i really sort of entered the pension space um because uh, i led the market intelligence work we did on uk and european dc and retirement income markets um and uh i was i was poached by the regulator who were a client actually so the fca was a client of mine uh, in in the market intelligence bit and uh, one day they rang up and were like we need we need someone to help come and build what was the time was the sector views um that they were using for their for their strategy work um and so i joined the fca to work on their um sector views and sector strategy work for both pensions and retail investments because i kind of spanned both um uh and and they were quite pleased to have someone with actually an investment background because that's rarer than you yeah. might imagine uh in in uh, uh actually you two you two probably wouldn't it wouldn't be surprised by that it's scary isn't um, it, <laughs> and then yeah and, and a part of the work we did at spence johnson actually was also working with the live companies was we 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 well, so when the igcs were first set up effectively there was a line i don't know if you remember in or you probably do remember saying that they needed to look after value for money but that's yeah. all it said um and we set up the first working group effectively of the igcs to try and work out what that meant um it was a group that was eventually taken over by sackers and reddington yeah so so spence johnson were the were the founding kind of um sort of members of, of that group partly because we did a benchmark right. for, for the for the for the, mm. for the providers as well so we sort of had the we had the, we had the contacts and the sort of and the, and the background um so i've been working on value for money since since sort of those days so so um yeah that was back in well 2017 or, or maybe before that 2015 16. um so yeah and then as you mentioned in the intro at the fca i worked on the joint strategy as well as my my sort of uh, strategy work for the for the sectors themselves and then when i was when i when i joined the tpr because if you're going to work on value for money and pension strategy you have to work for two you do so when i joined tpr i sort of i sort of picked up picked up my own hospital pass um, because as head of strategy i was also i was also in charge of our strategic relationship with the fca um so yeah i sort of feel like i've seen value for money through a number of different um you know guises and 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 looked at it from both the business and the regulatory context you know and and so while, while there are those that say oh value for money is just the the latest latest idea of the political sort of set i'd say there's a lot of groundwork that's been laid and i, and I agree that that it's becoming a reality now because the political because the political winds, if you like, see see about certain value in it, and that value is around consolidation, those sort of things. But I think there are significant numbers of people working on this on the regulatory side who've been working on it for much longer, and I think the challenge is to try and meet the political agenda, but also keep keep the intention behind it, which is, you know, the industry now it's responsible for a nationally important and you know, and and you know too big to fail and things come into this, you know, uh, delivery needs to, to have enough transparency to know. I mean, that, that example I mentioned earlier, do we know for certain that the those in the bottom quartile are not getting 45% less than yeah, those in the yeah. top quartile? I don't even uh, say that. And, and auto enrollment, in my view, given back to the little old ladies, you know, money and it's not our money or less of it, it requires us to have that yeah. answer in my view, yeah. in order to, in order to justify our continued delivery of it. Um, cause otherwise your question, Nico, about should this be nationalized somewhat, somewhat, well maybe it should i mean maybe that that would be you know if we can't come up with that answer as a private in, as the private market side of this then then i don't think i don't think we have the right to ask people yeah. to make more contributions in the system even yeah um so so i think that's 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 sort of my history and sort of how it how it, uh, how it thing. and then and then i joined altus a year ago 
because they were asking for someone to, to to pick up on some of that some of that some of this stuff from the from the operations side so obviously you know this this as we've discussed implementing these things require a huge amount of um operational change and so they wanted someone with insights from, from where this was all coming from if you like to, to to join them and help help fill out their capabilities in that regard it sounds like you've had an interesting set of roles there uh robert and um yeah, yes. just which is one question um about sort of fca and tpr you know are, are they hmm. you know how closely do they work together yeah and is there just a sort of fundamental different philosophical base from how they approach regulation that is always going to cause tensions between the approach that they will want to adopt but can you know, can we get a, a unified vfm framework between um, fca and tpr i think i think yeah, yeah, yeah. i knew this question was coming <laughs> uh I'm, I'm an obvious person to ask no about, exactly right? exactly i think that i think that um, so again, having listened to some of your previous podcasts, this has come up before. I think one of the issues is FCA and TPR come from different parts of the policymaking, yeah. you know, psychology, if you like, even outside of the politics side, you know, DWP is responsible for the social outcomes, if you like, and the, and the, and the, and the, and the, or, you know, and, and the employment and employer and pensions and those sort of things. Whereas, whereas the FCA is coming more from the treasury perspective, um, you know, and, and the market and the market focus. And I think those are very different. I think, I think the FCA's competition focus, for example, is not necessarily, it often creates a tension with the consumer protection yeah. focus because, you know, a, a, a truly competitive, you know, unfettered market is pretty, can be pretty damaging to yeah. consumer yeah. outcomes, yeah. you know? And, and so, and so I think the FCA itself grapples with those two parts of its own brain, if you like. Um, I think there is a lot of close working between the two and there is definitely a strong desire to see from the from the pensions policy people that I've met in the organizations you know having worked on both sides there is a desire to see alignment there is an understanding that it, it is suboptimal to have you know two different approaches and all the rest of it but I think there are forces that that are that, that are swirling around above not just the people working on it but even above the organizations themselves yeah. I and mean, what I often say is you want one regulator DWP and Treasury need to be friends with each other. And Darren, you worked in the Treasury. Uh, it's not. It's not been my experience of watching it from the outside. So, uh, look, all of that is really, really interesting. Let's 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 move on because um, our third question that we ask every guest, Robert, is what is value for money, and and what does it mean to you? You've you've pulled out a few different points, so maybe you can kind of get to the get to the punchline. Yeah, handbags, <laughs> handbags, handbags. Yes. Handbags. So so I'm I'm. Uh, I'm I'm quite close to where Zoe was on this, um, uh, and maybe that's unsurprising given we've we've both come from the from that sort of looking at the AE delivery. Mm. Um, uh, the, the VFM means to me, you know, improving the collective outcome, and and you know, I, I, and I am comfortable with the idea that if that's more homogenised, but the baseline is raised so that everyone gets a bit, you know, so, so that on average everyone gets a bit more, but no one gets too much or too little effectively that that's where it, it, it needs to come from so that that idea that it's the investment return that, you know those outcomes that we talk about in the, you know that we want pensions to achieve ultimately it's the investment return and and the sort of and and then potentially that income for life mm -hmm. as a default you know coming coming out the back of it that is the core of this delivery um and I liken this maybe a little bit to, you know, you've had people talk about what it means, you know, what they attach it to in their lives. 
I'm, I'm probably quite boring. It's like it's probably my car or something, you know, which is which is a German made thing. And, and the thing I want my car to do is get my family from A to B when I need it to in a safe and secure manner, um, you know, and 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 I want it to do that over and over again, not break down, not, you know, it, you know, all the rest of it. if it can do that in a more environmentally sustainable way with good fuel economy and those sort of things, that's great. But that's not the core delivery I want from the car. I want the car mm. to work you know, and, and, and work so well. And I don't need to understand how it works particularly. I just want it to be able to, I want to know it does and trust it. And it's, you know, I've had it for six years and it's never broken down on me. That's been good value. Um, you know, so it's, it's something like that. And then you mentioned the handbags sort of thing. I, I do think, I do think, you know, if we're looking for engagement with pensions, I do think it's extremely difficult to expect people to, you know, con pensions is, is fascinating to me because it's very unhuman, you know, <laughs> The idea of deferring an out, uh, deferring a need for forty years, forty years if you're in your twenties, you yeah. know, yeah, you know, it, it, it's insane. It, it's so far away, too far away for anyone to really engage with. But I think if you're going to get anywhere close to it, it, you need to be talking about giving someone a suitcase that fills up with money throughout their life and 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 not a bunch of handbags, effectively, because at the moment the system is every time you change you change jobs, you get a handbag, and when you change jobs again, you throw that handbag in a cupboard and you and, and you, you you get a new handbag, and then at the end of your life, you know you're you're, you're given a you're, you're given an instruction to, to to find all the handbags that in your house and and stick them all into a suitcase kind of thing, and I'm like, well, why don't we just start with the suitcase? Um, you know, I know there are challenges about how people would make that first choice, um, uh, but but you know, as we've sort of talked about, as long as as long as it was it was a choice made in a in, in a sort of highly much more standardized sort of homogenous group of very large schemes you'd like to think that the regulations would be in place to make sure no one would be making a particularly bad choice and in fact spreading things around different schemes would be more about managing the systemic risks mm -hmm, you know mm -hmm. than, than than people getting vastly different outcomes um so that that sort of single that, that single thing that because because i think you could engage with the idea that it would fill up with money over the over the course of your life and, and that's something you can see and take with you although i have to say i think my final thing you know is I do question whether pensions, given that so unhuman nature of it, whether whether pensions is going to be the long term answer if we get people to, to see these things and engage with them more, because I think we're approaching a point if we're going to lower the, the limits in auto enrollment, you know, and, and to, to include, you know, everything from the first pound. You know, think of the cost of living crisis we're in right now. Mm -hmm. You know, you could see a future in which someone in their 40s on a low income had accumulated, you know, five or 10, 10 grand or so, maybe a bit more, but, you know, and then loses their job. And in an open finance world, they'd be able to see a pension pot there that they've got five or 10 grand in and, you know, they can't pay their rent and they can't do whatever, but they're not allowed to touch that. That's their pension for another yeah, 20, yeah. for them in another 20 years. I don't think that's going to fly, really. Mm. I, I think we're going to end up in a conversation about long-term yeah. savings, that the idea of say, having a pot for a rainy day is a good idea and that that pot can only be accessed under a certain set of circumstances, of which paying for your retirement, if you can make it last that long, is one, but, but actually can help you, you know, in, your, in your life journey more and, and, and you know, help smooth, smooth the bumps of, of, you know, of, of, of the baby's life. I think that gets closer to something that people will value because it, 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 it has a slightly more proximate and sort of day-to-day -day financial well-being context attached yeah. to it. You know, I don't think the financial well-being of a pension kicks in until you're in your, really, until you're in your yeah. later life, really, yeah. in your yeah. 40s and 50s, when that starts to really feel like it's a thing. So so I wonder, you know, if, if maybe we're talking about long-term savings in the long run, uh, you know, with pensions as part of the mix, but, but whether it will be called pensions and... and yeah, I think that's and I, th I think the dashboard. It, sorry, Nico. I thought that mm. I don't think the dashboard is going to play a role in this as well. 
Um, and I think um, that's going to drive a bit more transparency around pensions. Um, and I think that will spark some of the, the issues or, dis, or thinking about the issues that you're talking about, Robert. Because cause already, mm. the pen, you, notwithstanding the delay we were talking about earlier, um, already the, you know, the pensions dashboard and the concept of the pensions dashboard is out of date. Yeah. Um, it's about open pensions and open finance. You know, that's where the banking industry yeah. has gone. And that then links into your points about financial well-being and taking a more holistic approach um, to, 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 to the whole sort of suite of people's money and finances. And I think that there's going to be a number of things, cost of living crisis, you know, you've only got money you could spend once, um, pensions dashboards that will just sort of almost create that perfect storm as to, so what is a pension actually for? You know, and, and how best can people allocate resources over their life and save over their life um, yeah. to, to deliver the best possible outcomes for them? So, yeah, I, yeah. I, I think I agree in the sense of, you know, pensions have been special. Um, I will always think they're special. But I think, you know, um, will, will people value them and will people want them longer term? Well, and also given auto-enrolment is incredibly hard to opt out of it's it, it's almost a tax it's a great it's a great design because it's almost a tax but in a very sort non-taxi way <laughs> helpful for, for those for those with a more libertarian way you can claim you can opt out but we all know that every time you join a job it tries yeah. to opt you in every every three years it tries to opt you in again you really have to want it yeah. to opt out of it and and it's therefore eating eating the the what limited disposable income you know the the, the poorer parts of society or the, even even in the middle classes would normally set aside into their savings you know mm. it's kind of automatically doing that for them and you know limiting you know set, you know not limiting but you know eating into their ability to save somewhat and so the idea that it's only for one thing you know if it's a great mechanism to get people to save which i think mm. it is um then, then why would we only why would we only make them well, why would we only get them to save for for, for one thing that's a very yeah. long time away you know and not to mention that all that saving is taken out of the economy from a government perspective you know because people aren't going to spend it while any of the political people we have in power at the moment you know are around so so you're asking every time you're asking for the rate to be raised you're asking for more money to be taken out and put into pensions and so it's not so sort of surprising that well, but that's that well, if that's going to happen. It needs to be spent on something we value. There's, 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 but I'm just saying that's the that's the reality of what, what people accounting there because that just neglects the fact that yeah. more money is paid to DB pensioners than is taken out, right? Um, so, so yeah, I'm talking DCs primarily here. Yeah, but, but, yeah, but it's the it's the pension system, isn't it, that that we're talking about? Yeah. I, I I just wanted to go back to the, uh, the the idea of I guess other reasons to withdraw from your pension. Um, because yeah, so Southeast Asia has a number of different providential funds, mm. um, where I believe, so I, I know the Singapore one has like a ring fence around the amount that you can, uh, have tax relief around for pensions, um, the employer contributions for pensions. Uh, but then there is a pot next to it where, you know, you can mix and match how much goes into different places. And yeah, that's for deposits on houses mm. and for emergencies, um, and there's a later longer life care kind of pot as well. I mean, we, we who knows, at some stage in our lifetime, uh, gentlemen, face the uh, privatisation of the NHS. Um, we'll certainly face AI as a middle class hollowing out. Um, we'll face uh, climate change as, uh, a, a, you know, a, a problem in terms of um, just what the physical assets of, of the world are, 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 you know, what their value is. So those kind of providential ideas where there are, again, super funds, uh, places that can 
be institutionally invested, aligned with some sort of government policy, however independent, and then also flexible for that for that individual. I think, yeah, maybe this this heyday of pensions is kind of coming to an end. Mm. Do we have well, a, do the we value have... of long term saving? Mm. It's the future. Yeah. Do we have a pension? So kind of value to it. Have we have we kind of is it the DB system in the UK that that has given us this kind of the, the you know this focus on pensions compared to other countries? Do you yeah, think? I think so. Hmm. Um, but I also think it's poorly managed everyone's expectations as to what pensions are capable yeah. of delivering for the majority because it it was it was only ever available to the minority. Um, and some of the some of the some of the stuff I experienced in the policy side was well well you know DB is not as db is much more valuable because it provides a much better pension than dc and, and i'm like but but dc could never have done what yeah DC yeah is. that's why db isn't yeah, around exactly, anymore yes. you know it, we, we're talking about we're talking about two different systems with two very different ideas at their heart um so i think i think i think in part we are t we are terribly trapped by the mm. history of all of this and in, 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 and I don't I suspect we're not unique in that, um, but but I only uh, my main experiences in this country, um, you know, and I think part of the future is about moving beyond what pension has been for to what it's as you point out, you know, some of those things you mentioned are truly terrifying, right? So what could that kind of important money that you put away be for in the future, and how do we ensure that it meets those needs? I, I think that's a really interesting, but also you know very pertinent and sort of valuable question and i don't mm. think it threatens our industry in any real way because i really think that there's a lot of work yeah. to do with yeah. It yeah. in that regard and we could be on the front foot with it right rather than saying oh well or harking back to a time when the system was very different and it, it delivered to a different sort of set of outcomes and different sort of set of people one for the trade associations to pick up and run with yeah <laughs> <laughs> well look we've we're, that what a fantastic exploration i think you've been what a really interesting guest you've been for us robert um we've gone everywhere we've <laughs> we've you've destroyed our podcast in several different places but um all, all, all for maybe the technology good. yeah all for the good um and yeah i didn't imagine we were going to wind up with the destruction of pensions but here we are um so uh, evolution please i'm not i'm not i'm not a, i'm not a revolutionary in that regard. Uh, that's what they all say um so <laughs> Um, quiet revolutionary yes maybe. exactly thank you thank you so much for for being our our guest um uh this week um so darren what, what have we got coming up what have we got coming up so um we've got uh, a number of guests we've been quite organized nico uh, which is unlike oh, us or should i say i have been quite organized rather than we uh, quite yes. organized so so next week we're talking to mark ormston um, mm. And we've got, a f um, and we're going to pick up some of the annuity discussion there. And we've got Ros Altman, we've got Tan Su Chi, we've got Adriel Thompson, Adrian Balding. You know, so the guests are just coming through thick and fast. And we'll be talking yeah. about all things value for money, um, and also. Well, it's the big guns coming and humbled to be in in that. Yeah, I know, and, and, and Adrian, um, you know, is going to be coming on hopefully just after the. DWP response to the CDC consultation comes out, right. um, so it'll be good to get his take on that. Um, um, having to record, we will no doubt need some specials at some stage for new consultations. Oh well, so they, they, to to. I, 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 I hear that they are coming thick and fast over the next yeah. uh, six weeks or so, uh, probably less than that. 
Can I just say that I think podcast responses to consultations are the way forward. Extremely, but it's so much more engaging having read a lot of consultation responses in my, in my time. <laughs> so just to finish up, um, thank you very much for listening. Thank you for DG Publishing. We're not in the pod today as I was away at uh, investment, PLSA Investment Conference all week. Um, so we unfortunately had to do this remotely. Um, you can contact yeah, it, us, vfmpensions at gmail.com. Um, and... So in two weeks' time, I'm doing my TCFD report research launch, which was the DCIF work I've done. If you look, if you look on my LinkedIn feed, you'll see a link to an Eventbrite, um, you know, place to register. Um, I'm not going to pull my punches, so I think look forward to that. Ooh. Another organisation that was set up by Spencer. Ah, yes, it was. It? Yeah, yeah, that's true. That's true. Sponsors <laughs> everywhere. Right. Um, doesn't exist anymore. No, exactly, no exactly. Well, um, what a great episode. Uh, thanks, Robert, for giving up your time and for being um, so open and controversial. Yeah. <laughs> God. <laughs> um, so, yeah. The marketing department knocking at my door at the end of all this. Yeah. <laughs> what did you say? <laughs> so, until next time, that's goodbye from me. It's goodbye from me. And Robert. Thank you very much, guys. Goodbye from me.